Every morning, you know, people go to their local coffee shop, get a cup of coffee in a disposable single-use cup, and that cup is usually made out of paper and lined with plastic. A lot of times, people think these are recycled, but the reality is 99% of them are not recycled. They end up in landfills or bodies of water. But one evening, one of my relatives, a cousin of mine, she wanted to just go for a stroll. And during that stroll, she approached a street vendor, and she wanted to get a tea from them. So the tea was served in this crudely made terracotta cup, and so she drank the tea and smashed the cup on the ground. Why, you know, you're littering. Like, why are you doing this? And her response to that was, "Well, it's made out of dirt. Why do you care?" And that sort of sat in my head that, you know, it's, there's something there. I can, you know, it was an observation that stuck with me. For millions of people in the United States, their day starts by going down to the local coffee shop and getting a cup of coffee. So much so that in the United States, we use over 50 billion single-use paper coffee cups with that little plastic liner, which makes them very tricky to recycle every single year. That's 95,000 cups every minute of every day for one full year. But what if there was a solution to our addiction to the single-use paper plastic coffee cup. And what if that solution is already being used by over a billion people, incorporating technology that's over a thousand years old? And what if that solution was right in front of us? It just happens to be on the other side of the world. My name is Lex Faber. Welcome to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet? Our guest today is Sanjeev Mankotia. He is the CEO of Gaia Star, and Gaia Star makes a disposable cup out of clay, technology that has been used in India for over a thousand years and that Sanjeev was reintroduced to when he was back visiting his family. Now, Sanjeev has a fascinating background. He's a classically trained engineer, and then he moved into finance where he spent over a decade, including as the head of model risk management. So he's the guy that makes sure that Silicon Valley Bank doesn't happen. He's the one that understands how much risk exposure you are taking. After that, he went on to work at KPMG, one of the world's largest auditing tax and advisory firms in the world as the managing director specializing on risk consulting. So his entire career was based around being the guy in the room you turn to when you need to know is this risk worth taking? And today, he has decided to become perhaps the riskiest of things that a business person can do, which is an entrepreneur. So he's the one that's supposed to be the arbiter, the last backstop for sound judgment. And right now, he has pushed all of his chips in on Gaia Star, on creating an alternative to our single-use plastic paper cup addiction. So stick around for my conversation with Sanjeev, the CEO of Gaia Star. Welcome to Who's Saving the Planet, Sanjeev. Thrilled to have you on board. Uh, welcome in. Thanks for having me. We have a lot to talk about today because you are trying to tackle something that we all experience every day, which is what is my morning cup of coffee going to look like or tea or what have you. This is a problem that affects billions of people and a solution needs to present itself because what do we do after we have that cup of coffee? If we're buying it from our local store, we turn around and we throw it away. 
I want to have that be the introduction for you to tell us a little bit about what is Gaia Star, just from the ground up, if I've never heard of it before. Sure. Gaia Star, uh, at, at its core, is a technology company. And when I say technology, more hardware related, that focuses on robotics or using robotics and additive manufacturing to solve a single use plastic problem. Every morning, you know, people get up, go to their local coffee shop, get a cup of coffee in a disposable single use cup. And that cup is usually made out of paper and lined with plastic. But ultimately, that after 15 minutes of you know using it or drinking the coffee it's disposed of into your regular waste stream a lot of times people think these are recycled but the reality is 99 percent of them are not recycled they end up in landfills or bodies of water in europe they get incinerated but you know the nuance here is although technically they can be recycled it's just too expensive to recycle because to separate the paper from the plastic lining is, you know, just complicated. So it just kind of goes into the into the landfill. This includes anything that's also biodegradable. You know, there's biodegradable plastics out there. Yes, they are technically biodegradable, but then they require to be processed in an industrial uh, uh, processing plant, and there's just not many of them. So really, the problem is. The amount of volume of this stuff that we're creating relative to the infrastructure in a huge mismatch, right? It's like fractions. And now I want to also comment that this is a problem in the West where if with all the resources we have in the Western world, we can't solve this or you know take care of it because we're creating this pollution problem. You know, there's no hope for the uh, developing countries, not that they're you know not aware of this. It's just they're overwhelmed. It's like not their culture. It's been sold to them. And that's the, the issue we're trying to fundamentally solve. Okay. We've outlined the problem. Yes. Uh, and it is multifaceted, yes. right? It's cheap. It's convenient. It's easy. It's habitual. We're all used to doing it. Come to me now, Sanjeev. What What is our solution to this ubiquitous glut of single-use plastic? Yes. So I'll start with um, where the idea came from. So I'm Indian by heritage. Over a decade ago, I was uh, traveling back home, visiting extended family. And one evening, uh, one of my relatives, a cousin of mine, she wanted to just go for a stroll, a summer evening. And during that stroll, she approached a street vendor I street vendors, of course, from very humble backgrounds. You know, they have a little rickshaw, they have a little pot of tea, and she wanted to get a tea from them. So the tea was served in this crudely made terracotta cup. Um, these cups in India are called coolers. And so she drank the tea. It kind of looks like the size of an espresso shot. And then, you know, smashed the cup on the ground. And my reaction was... <laughs> As one we, does. Yeah. My reaction was, well... Why, you know, you're littering, like, why are you doing this? And her response to that was, well, it's made out of dirt. Why do you, why do you care? And one of the interesting things was the reason why she was smashing in the cup, not to be, you know, eco-friendly or anything. You know, it wasn't in that mindset. She was smashing it because she knows that the, the scrappiness of these entrepreneurs, these, you know, tea vendors, is they will fish out the cup from the garbage rinse it and reuse it, even though it's meant to be single use. So they, every customer mm. actually breaks it so that it can't be reused on purpose. 
very different angle, right? And they're coming through it <laughs> because they're trying to save money and resources on, from their side. But the, the customer, you know, the tea, tea purchaser is also trying to not, you know, propagate uh, unhygienic practices. You know, just an observation. But my thing uh, uh, about this uh, visual in front of me was, wow, yeah, you know, I don't have a good response when she says it's made out of dirt. And by the way, these cups have been used in the Indian subcontinent for over 5,000 years. So it was the original disposable single-use cup. And that sort of sat in my head that, you know, it's, there's something there. I can, you know, formulate everything just then. But it was an observation that stuck with me. And then over the years, it's percolated in my head and said, well, why can't we take this concept and bring it to the, to the West? Of course, the same kind of vessel in its shape and form it's not, you know, it's not easily usable, but the concept of a single-use vessel made out of dirt or clay should be feasible. Like, why can't we do that? And you know, as I further thought about it, I wanted to make these vessels to be eggshell thin because it's taking inspiration from Mother Nature or an egg, which is actually perfect packaging provided by nature for food, right? So there's an, and these egg egg shells are made out of calcium and super thin but when you really look at them for what they are they're actually structurally very very strong you know if you could in the right axis you put a lot of pressure on they're very very strong so that you know from my engineering background started getting me thinking why can't we have vessels that are used that are made out of this material eggshell thin because once you drink it or drink your beverage and you throw it away then you're really just throwing away you know, some dust or dirt. And, you know, to be able to manufacture these things this thin, I went and researched and also talked to large manufacturers of ceramics because making a ceramic or a clay cup is not a new thing. Again, thousands of years old, everywhere around the world. You know, Roman Empire, everybody used these things. But to make them thin, I learned that for mass manufacturing, it was extremely difficult, if not impossible, the way the current technology is. So current technology uses uh, a mold and a dye. They throw a little bit of clay, and you know, within seconds, uh, a cup is made. But those cups are really thick. They're kind of like, like your home ceramics. So, right. well, they're probably not built to be destroyed immediately. Exactly. They're built to to endure. I mean, God forbid a dishwasher gets involved, but sure. Exactly, yeah. exactly the point. So that's what they make. That's all the whole industry is is focused on. And my idea was, well, I need to make them thin because I want to make them disposable. It's literally 50 grams of clay, you know, which is nothing. And uh, why can't we do this? And I couldn't say no to that. I couldn't, I couldn't find a reason why you can do it. And well, I want to pause yeah. you here for one second because I'm imagining <laughs> that you're telling this to me and like your next thing is going to be like, and now I need money. Yes. So in my mind, I'm like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to create an eggshell equivalent type of thing that is also a projectile for mass distribution for the American audience who is both like kind of angry before they get their coffee and incredibly not concerned with making sure the integrity of that vessel lasts whatever their commute is, like a cup holder. So I'm like listening to this being like, I love this story. There's no way, Sanjeev. So now let's get to the part where you're like, and... 
Gaia Star has now created. Yeah, so Gaia Star has created this. So what we came up with to be able to do these eggshell type of vessels, we wanted to use additive manufacturing. And by definition, additive manufacturing is you're adding material where it's needed and nothing more. Uh, it's commonly known as 3D printing. So with that current technologies or a 3D printer, it was not possible to do things that are you know, sort of massive in terms of volume uh, because generally 3D printers take a long time to create you know, uh, a, a vessel. So our idea was that yeah, one day we want to have a machine that's really our North Star that sits in a coffee shop or a restaurant and you could print on demand, whatever plate you want, bowl or espresso cup or a coffee cup. And in order to do that, we had to really create our own technology, leveraging additive manufacturing to be able to get the eggshell thin vessel. <clears throat> and we have, able, we have done that. Now we want to be able to scale it. So our printers or our machine can now print a vessel in less than 30 seconds. We started, when we first started, it was about four hours. In the, in the two years we've been working on it, it's gone faster and faster. And yes, we could get into the details how we we do that, but that's you know maybe a separate conversation or a later conversation. But I want to. So sorry, go ahead. The vision for this then is, I as a consumer, right? I walk into my local coffee shop. Well, you you tell me. I, I'm the consumer. I walk into my local coffee shop. I order black coffee medium. What happens next? So the barista goes off to start making your coffee, black, medium. But while he's getting that coffee, he could hit the button that says, print me a medium coffee cup. And, you know, these two things are happening simultaneously. So our goal is that this cup is printed in less than 10 seconds, ready to use. Barista picks up the cup, puts the coffee in, serves it to you. You know, let's take that same thought a little bit further. You know, we're talking about the future here is you could have your little app, you know, your phone and you before you get to your coffee shop, you could just order it and totally. it gets, you know, ready for you to just sweep in, pick up. And there's a lot of opportunity for being able to customize this. So you could even have your little name on it or the size you want, because Lex, you're, you're a weirdo. You like to drink, you know, half a gallon or half a liter of coffee. Why can't we print you know me too well, you know, so it's it's that type of thinking. Yes, there's a lot of engineering needed to get to that stage. So just sort of walking backwards. And what we're currently able to do is we're able to make these vessels uh, in our what we call micro factory. So we have our technology. It's in its initial stages, but we're doing a lot of R&D. And part of the R&D is being able to produce you know, a large number that that could be used for pilots and things. So our engineers were producing these vessels and they were coming out really nice. And we started just selling them, giving them to our customers. And we want to learn from our customers. So like, why have these things lying around if they're good enough to use? So that's kind of gives you a view on where we are and where we are stepping to go forward. Well, I have two more questions about the customer journey, yeah, my journey. Yeah. So I've got my black coffee. Do I put a lid on it? Yeah. So yes, ideally, if you are American customer, and this is, depends regionally what we're learning, and this is why we want to interact with, have great partners, is because it's all about a learning. We want to build 
a product ultimately that is you know very very nice for the customer it's like the customer loves it luxurious feeling because you are paying five to seven dollars for a cup of coffee some places more and you lived in new york for a long time you try to get on a subway with something without a lid on i mean you're going to engender a mini riot on the sea yes absolutely so a lid is necessary in the american uh uh uh, market and we will have that we're working on that solution but it's totally totally uh on on the plan and that lid will also be printed yeah so so that's the so then i've i've had my coffee yes. now and i think this could be perhaps your most compelling selling point yes. do i get to just throw it on the ground and watch yeah. as it crashes into whatever surface yeah. i reach like what is that part of the vision also the, included yeah. in this sort of new american customer the the vision is really that you dispose of it without littering right and so you're throwing it in one of the bins and it, the waste stream is going to take care because ultimately most of most of your current incumbents are going into a landfill. We're saying if you throw this into your regular garbage, it's going to end up in the landfill too. But the key point there is you're putting dirt back into the landfill because it's just sand. It's 50 grams of sand, 50 to 70 grams of sand. The, the cups only disintegrate by mechanical force. You could, you know, you could step on it. It's literally sand at the end, right? And you can mm-hmm. imagine that. And I presume the cups are integ- they, they retain their integrity Absolutely. when you have liquid in them and all of that, right? Okay. So this is one of these ideas that I love. Great. Because I'm like, I love this it too. is absolutely, <laughs> there's just so many, I'm like, this is a world that I would love to live in where that, that future feels tenable, yes. right? It feels tangible. Yes. Where we have these 3D printers that are there creating something that, reduces single plastic use and I'm sure provides a tactile like a tactilely more pleasant experience than a plastic cup that can get soggy and wet and what have you like we've all seen the sort of plastic straw phenomenon live and die on that um so I love this but I want to go back to that time where you have this idea and now you need to sit in front of someone and say I I am only at the vision stage I require Capital. you to open your yeah. wallet or part with something to make that happen. How do you how do you convince those people to to join you on this completely audacious yeah. mission? So the first con- uh, person I had to convince was myself because I first I was the first person who wrote the check for this myself, right? And mm. and it was in a small check. Get in the game, yes. right? So I felt that um, I couldn't find in this you know, over a decade of percolating in my head, I couldn't find a reason why we can't do it. It always came back to, oh, it's an engineering problem. With enough engineering time, these can be solved. Because look, hey, we're printing, uh, you know, the technology, the brilliant people, young engineers coming out of school, they're printing rockets that are supposed to go to Mars. So why can't we print, you know, a thin clay cup? Uh, It just has to be done very quickly. So. It is all the engineering, and I think you know from a product market fit, it's 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 a ten out of ten based on what we have experienced. And to- listen, I spent ten years in Brooklyn. Are you kidding? Like the, you, you've tossed one of these in Williamsburg, you know, people will flock to yeah. it. So there definitely is a market for this type of thing. It's also it's nice because it's it's very virtue signaling. Where like you're walking down the street with it, and it's sort of here. This is where my values are. So I'm sold on that idea. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you with the like getting from your wallet to someone yeah, else's wallet. And, you know, the key point here is that we understand also that people are not 
willing to pay just for sustainability. You know, that is certainly our mission. We want to eliminate single-use process, but people are absolutely willing to pay for a great experience. And my logic has been that at home, you always drink out of a ceramic cup in the morning. You know, when you get up, make your coffee or your beverage or your plate or food, you're never using plastic stuff. And somewhere we lost that enjoyment mm -hmm. for at the sacrifice of convenience because we wanted it to be convenient then you know this thing and it's not that old it's 50 to 70 years old this uses of these you know plastic paper cups so well why can't we have what i call the fine china experience with the convenience of disposability and it's going back thousands of years it's a great experience so to answer your question when I started talking to external, you know, we needed capital and um, to start to talk, it was articulating this vision. And when somebody hears it in its entirety and sees that, look, you know, things are created out of clay, that the unit economics are really cheap and they're using more material and they're using more energy. So the unit economics are low so why can't you do it? It's just shaping a cup, right? It's just you're taking mm -hmm. it in a different direction and it percolates in their head for a day or two. And then it's just like a eureka moment. Sometimes people, and these are you know engineers who have become VCs or investors, have built great companies. It takes them sometimes a second and they get it right away. Sometimes it takes them a couple minutes, right? But... Mm -hmm. They always, because it's very easy to comprehend, you know, it's like, well, yeah, it like, is. why can't you do this? Right. It's one of those ideas that it feels like post facto, once it already exists, that it's very obvious. And those are the best kind of ideas. Yes, right? exactly. But on the path, so you get these engineers, these people that are like, okay, I built hard things. I can understand this is a hard problem, but your market size is potentially huge. And so let's go after it. Yes. What about the first time that you have to go to and have you yet already gone to a coffee shop and said, hey, all I need you to do is put this 3D printer on your counter and hold my hand while we, you trust me as we forge into this brave new future? Yeah. And that's sometimes difficult for people to imagine. Like they're like, what? What are you talking about? And, you know, they have <laughs> they have a vision already. I mean, a lot of times baristas aren't like, I didn't get into this line of work so I could operate a 3D printer. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, currently printers, you know, you, you require some level of skill. It's generally focused for engineers, the more professional ones. And then you have the hobbyists, you know, so people know what they are, but it's a preconceived mo notion of what a printer is and what it does. And so it takes, unless we are able to show them physically this printer, that concept is still, you know, uh, science fiction to them. However, mm -hmm. when we bring the actual cups to the people, including baristas and chefs, and we're talking about Michelin star, you know, sh chefs, and they hold it. That's probably where you'd want to start at the top end of the spectrum absolutely. and work their way down. Yeah. They, you know, a, a, even a barista at a, a nice coffee shop that's selling, you know, like premium beverages, they have all take a lot of pride in what they're making. Because those, those entrepreneurs, or I say those business owners, including the employees there, they're proud of what they're doing. They have sourced these beans from special locations and stuff. So 
they're recognizing that this vessel is truly honoring their creations. And once they hold it, they're just, they just love it because it makes so much sense to them and they don't want to be contributing to pollution. They want to be contributing to a beautiful experience, even if it's 15 minutes for the person who's buying the coffee or the beverage. And it's, you know, it's a little bit of a special moment for whoever, you know, you're, it's a little bit of break. It's like, hey, I'm going to really enjoy my coffee and whether it's by walking or in the car or sit down. But it's being you're drinking out of a ceramic cup. It's like fine china. Like, why not? It is interesting that we've endured this incredible inflation in coffee prices where, you know, something that used to cost a quarter is now four or five dollars. And then at the high end, you six, seven, eight dollars for, you know, a cold brew or a pour over or what have you. But the vessel has remained a complete commodity where there's a race to the bottom in a lot of ways. And I also think it's interesting. And I was thinking about this as you were talking that. I often talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and specifically engineers that are focused on biomimicry. How do we take the natural world and then develop that into products or to services that are going to improve our relationship with the way that we make things and use things? And I don't know what the word is, but what you're describing is more of like an anthropologic adaptation of something that is kind of the cheapest, most sort of fundamental thing in a society where it's it's the bottom, bottom rung of the spectrum of services and goods, what's available to everyone. But here in this market, it actually is more tenable or more sort of, it makes more sense for the top of the market as this luxury type of item. But it's the same, it's the same thing. It's just an adaptation for a different type of use case. Yes. And here, you know, we are saying we're starting at the, the you know, the higher end because those are the partners we need to learn more, right? And it's just not like swapping one cup for a, a clay, a ceramic cup for a, a paper cup. It's not simple as that. It's understanding the, the ultimate customer, understanding a lot of the logistics. It's not about just fabricating these guys. How do you get it to them? How do they store? Because it's a different material. It has tremendous mm-hmm. properties, you know, that are really, really strong. But it's also ceramic. It's you know it's it, it's hoop strength, which is the the strength. If I were to squeeze the circular thing, you know, it's like twenty times more than a paper cup. Right? But when you squeeze a paper cup, it collapses. You know, this crumble. Yeah, your drink will spill out. This, if you squeeze it hard enough, twenty times more, it's gonna it's gonna crumble. Right? It's gonna have a different way of breaking. So from being paper cup or plastic cup being ductile. This is more uh, brittle kind of behavior. So, you know, there are different things and we have to learn. Is the weight comparable? It's very comparable. So, uh, you know, the cup that I'm showing you here. Like something that would hold like 12 ounces. Yeah. Something like that. Very comparable. Sanjeev just held up a cup that looks, for our audio listeners, a cup that looks very similar to what a 12-ounce coffee cup would look like. Yeah. And that's why we want to make it eggshell thin is it's almost paper thin, right? So 400 microns is is an eggshell thickness. Uh, We're not making them that thin. We can, by the way, our technology, and we have done it. But every time we give it to I come somebody, from the world of fine wine and let me tell you the like the wine glasses where you're paying $100 for a wine glass and they if you look at them the wrong way yeah. they will break. Yeah. And so I and, fully understand the the elegance of that sort of thinness that comes with especially something you're drinking. Yeah, and when you're printing them you could you could 
you know, just like an egg, it has a very specific shape. And in some dimensions that that egg can actually hold up an elephant, believe it or not, right, from physics. And the way you can customize it, like I used to go to this really boutique little shop in Brooklyn and they would just put a stamp on their coffee cup to say, here, this is from Variety. And you could, I'm sure, create any kind of sort of artwork or customization on that 3D printing that would allow them. As you said, it's now it's an expressive art form. Yes. Coffee has gone from utilitarian tool to now an elevated form of creating something that we enjoy and expression for the people who are creating it. Um, you can definitely see. So, you know, I am unbi- I am very biased on this. I love this idea conceptually. I, I think it's fantastic. I love where it comes from. I love your story about it. But I've got I have three nits to pick. And we talked about these before. And this is because I want this to succeed. But you have three as I, I'm sure you have more. But as I see it, three big challenges. And I'm curious about how you're addressing each one of them. And the first you kind of already mentioned, which is distribution. Yes. So getting plastic cups around the world, relatively simple. They're cheap. They're durable. They, Like you said, if you press on them, they bend and they yeah. flex back. But you're going to solve that by 3D printers. And so there's some question of, like, how do you get the market to put those things in there and how much do they cost? So I guess that's that's one question. So if I'm a, a coffee shop, right, my margins are super thin, how am I going to is this cost comparative comparable to what I'm currently spending? Is it cheaper? Are you going to rent the machines to me? Like what's the plan in terms of distribution? Absolutely. I, I feel, and this is based on our, you know, calculations is that this could be much cheaper than an incumbent. And, you know, this we're solving this problem in, in a couple dimensions. One is we don't want to ship anything. We want the fabrication of this to happen on, on, on the spot, right? So all of a sudden, the distribution is not shipping cups around, but really, hey, we're just delivering to you a cartridge, an ink cartridge that has our you know, know dirt in it, if you put our clay in it. <laughs> and because it's super sure. dense and the cartridge, you know, it's made out of metal, you just sort of reuse it over and over again. Because we want to, on every step of our process, save things, right? Save you know, not only economics, but also energy, footprint, all of these things. So if you could just do this on, on the spot, a lot of efficiencies is gained uh, from that. We don't want to ship things because, you know, to ship anything, even the paper plastic, you need packaging, you need a box, you need to, like the plastic wrapper that goes on. Yeah. And so, so that's the waste we're trying to get rid of. So... And that goes back into the distribution aspect too. So the real model ultimate is to have this machine either in the shop or close by. It could be a little bit of a uh, kind of a ghost kitchen concept, which is kind of what we're doing now. It's a micro factory. Um, it could be even, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, a franchise model where somebody just makes these vessels for the local neighborhood shops, right? And Okay. And, and di- so you're still exploring different ways of everything from machine on the counter to, like you said, sort of like a localized distribution hub and then sort of drop them off in the morning. Yeah. Right, right. And, um, and it could be, like you said, cost competitive in the sense that your materials are very low. If and the not cheaper. I believe it could be cheaper because okay. it's dirt. <laughs> okay. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Right. Yeah. You're making dirt. Yes. I'm into it. And we can play and, with different distribution models to get them in people's so hands. So, Lex, I want to say, you know, let's go back to where I got the idea, right? So these street vendors that we're talking about are 
making these things. So there's a potter that makes them every morning. Somebody from their family goes to the riverbed or somewhere and you know gets some clay. They make them by hand and then they sell them to the tea vendor. And then the tea vendor right. is selling a cup of tea to you and I for maybe 25 US cents, which is like 20 rupees in India, right? So the observation there is each one of these families is making a living off of this to live off of. Granted, it's modest, but if they could do, that's true entrepreneur, that's being really scrappy. Like they're, you know, it's like the only cost there is really labor. It's not even the material because they're getting the material for free. So we're saying, okay, and we're saying, hey, we're going to automate everything. It's just the machine sits in the coffee shop. Like, what's there to do? Okay, you have to plug in the cartridge. So conceptually, we feel we have done some calculations. And now it's about execution. Yeah, we'll learn a lot of things. That's why we want to work with the mm -hmm. thing. But, you know, even a mass manufacturer of ceramics, you know, when you look at whether they're making a tile or a little cup or stuff, they're they're doing it at a very low price point. It's not... It's not like dollars for this. This is like, you know, 10 cents, 15 cents that they're making these things for. Right. I buy it. And now, so let's let's say we're done with that, yes. right? We've got distribution. We've got cross-competitiveness. Yes. Now you've got two markets you have to convince of things and convince of new things. New things are hard. You've got your, your baristas, your buyers of the cups, and you have your end consumers. So let's start with first the um, – and you've talked a little bit about like Michelin star customers and people on the top end. And I agree with like you start with that sort of the people that really care about the aesthetics, that want that luxury feel for sure. How, how have those conversations gone? Are you, are you testing this anywhere out yes. in the world? Like what, what's, what has that been like? It's been actually fantastic. Um, so the demand of our products from these customers far exceeds our ability to make them right now like by a factor of 10 probably, right? If not 100. Mm. They absolutely love it. It goes back to they're focused on making sure that their customer has the most beautiful experience. And I don't want to even say luxurious, but it's like, it's, hey, it's not, you know, I'm not serving you like just run of the mill, you know, kind of thing. It's like, it's going back to like, yeah, consuming food and beverage as a human is it's it's core to us and you know industrial industrialization of that has taken away some of this like you know it's not just shoving something down my throat it's like back yeah you're going to enjoy this because it's presented to you nicely and it's still like the cup you know the actual coffee beans are probably the same anywhere right right so well, no. What I, what I was agreeing with you before is that coffee has gone from this sort of commodity thing to now a, a vehicle of self-expression and of luxury. So I totally buy that. So it's gone really well with these people, and they're like, "We get it. We're in 100." Is there any? Are there any shops around the country that that we can go experience this so, right now? You know, one of the things when I first do, do and also touch back on your original question, one of the first people I spoke to, um, I got introduced to them. Uh, about a year and a half ago is Verve Coffee Roasters. They're a, a California-based uh, roaster. Uh, they have shops all over California, uh, retail shops uh, in California, and also in Japan. Don't ask me how they got in Japan happened, but they have uh, you know a, a, a lot of outlets. And they absolutely loved the idea. First, I just told them about it. They're like, okay. And then I showed them some of our very first cups you know they were 
we were making one or two, you know, of these things barely running on our prototype machines. And right away, it clicked to them that this is like the future. And although they're in the business of coffee, to them, it's very important that that coffee is experienced in the most elevated way as possible because they're putting so much effort in getting the coffee right. So it's, it's the full package of experience. So they, they, you know, they're very much focused on the future of coffee. So yeah, we started piloting them. We just did a, a pilot launch with them uh, for Earth Day celebration in their Palo Alto location. Right on time. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we had these, these little vessels. It's, we had, um, I forget what the uh, thing is, but it's a, it's a scoop of ice cream with, with uh, a fresh frozen, you know, uh, coffee on it. Yeah, an affogato. That's the one. That's the name. I, I, I always forget. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, we had some other cups. People were drinking uh, lattes and the baristas were coming out and like, hey, how can we have some? Baristas want to take them home for themselves. Keeping in mind that we have basically created a new category in this process. So you have your single use vessels, you know, the paper plastic incumbents, and then you have your, you know, $29 nice ceramic mug or $19.99 ceramic mug. Right, right, right. There's nothing in this. And there's not been anything in the middle for the long time. Yeah, and we are in the middle. I like that category creation. Yeah. We're in the middle because you could reuse our cups. If you if you want, you could well yeah. and deprive me of the joy of smashing them against whatever surface. You could do I that mean, too. We are giving <laughs> the choice to the customer because you know, yeah, you could you could rinse these off and perfectly fine. And I've had some of these in my house for over a year. I put them in the dishwasher; it's totally fine. I'm, no way, they're dishwasher safe. Yeah. So I want to put my caveat there. It's like I have put them in the dishwasher. I've even put them in industrial dishwashers and they're totally fine because it's a ceramic. But for us to be able to legally say that it's dishwasher safe, we have to test it against a particular standard. So for your, for sure. for your audience, I want to make sure <laughs> I'm clear there. So we've crossed one threshold, yes. right? We've Palo Alto coffee shop. That's if you were to ask where that would be a good spot for sure. Palo Alto, Brooklyn, one of those two. What about, I just came back from visiting my family in Cincinnati, Ohio, Middletown, Ohio, actually. How do we, how do we get there? How do we get to the Dunkin' Donuts in middle America to be both from a consumer side saying, I'm cool with this idea of having my coffee in this ceramic cup and the, the big multinational or, or very broad chains that move slowly, but when they make big investments, it can really change the scale and trajectory for a company. Yeah, and again, totally fair question. We are in our early stages. We want these sort of partners that we learn from and develop. And as we develop, we go down further the spectrum. At the end though, you know, somebody uh, uh, in Ohio deserves the same level of luxurious experience than somebody in, you know, New York, Brooklyn. Why not? And if it's not, you know, additional cost and stuff like that, it's like it's a better experience. That's what we were saying. It's a better experience and it's sustainable. People around the world, not only in the U.S., they're entitled to a little piece of luxury, too. And um, it's it's yeah, it's, you know, the fine China experience again at the, at the convenience of disposability. Um, to, to remind everybody, over generations, people were doing this. <laughs> it's nothing right. new. It's only in the past. There is precedent. Yeah. Like, so yeah. why can't we go back to it and you know give you the level of convenience, but still give you the same experience that 
many generations, you know, like let's say one generation. It's not even many. It's one yeah. generation ago is when we started using these convenience items. And it was totally, you know, forgotten that the, the experience should be nice because, hey, you, I'm giving you this thing that you could throw away. But, hey, you know, soggy straws and all of this comes into play. So, yeah, why, why can't we do that? And I don't have a good answer except that, hey, just going to no. take some engineering and, and, you know, people get love that. That's the that's your mentality of the builder of things like, yeah, it's a problem to be solved. That's not something that we need to figure out exactly what the solution is right now. We just need to chip away at it yeah. piece by piece. I love so much about this. Like I said, largely it's you're coming at it with an engineering mindset, which is fantastic. It's so audacious, but also just like so practical. It feels like the kind of thing that when it exists, it it's strange that we did it any other way. And like you said, an entire civilization would probably raise their eyebrows and say, yes, of course, welcome. I want to switch gears a little bit to, to the story of you and how you did this, because you uh, had a very long and successful career in a very different field, working in finance. And somewhere along the way, you said, you know what, I'm going to take all that security and stability and I'm going to throw it to the wayside and I'm going to invest my money in creating ceramic coffee cups. So this was, there is a question here. Here it is. At what point did you lose your mind? Did, what point did I lose my mind? I think uh, first, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, for your benefit of your audience, so I'm an engineer by training, a mechanical engineer. I initially worked in as an engineer, both in the bicycling industry and also in the automotive industry. And then I got seduced by finance and uh, I wanted to learn more. So took a class in economics and next thing you know, you know, did my graduate studies and then went to work for uh, in the banking sector in corporate finance and then in uh, ultimately in, in, in risk. And so I've worked for some of the largest banks in the world uh, and then switched over to management consulting really being on the other side, providing services to the bank, banks. And there too, my experience uh, uh, luckily was about building things. You know, it's building financial econometric models or teams that can solve specific problems. And uh, it was very, very rewarding to be able to do that. And then, you know, later on, I, uh, I felt I, I had climbed my mountain in that. It's like, okay, yeah, I could totally keep doing this. And can you say coast into retirement? And maybe I'm giving my age away a little bit, but I'm on the second half of my career than the first half, right? Um, and it just felt that I have this idea. And although I don't have any kids, I do love nature. I'm a cyclist. I like to go. And then you see all of this, you know, garbage out there that's floating around. And and it's just not, you know, nice to look at. And you could see that it's going to have a lot of impact for a lot of people. And not to mention the health issues from, you know, plastics, right? It's We just don't know. Mm -hmm. The reality is we just don't know. But we're starting to see... It's, it's everywhere from the deep, deepest trenches in the ocean to the Arctic snow, these microplastics. And we've discovered it in, in human blood. We have it in animals. We see it in the food stream. You know, plastic is an amazing material, but it's a, a double-edged sword, right? And um, it's... it's we have just about one credit card plastic worth of... Or one 
one amount of plastic equivalent to a credit card every week, I believe. Yeah, it's some some thing like that. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I've heard that. I well, I was definitely duration. being somewhat tongue in cheek yeah. with the uh, when did you lose your mind? But most entrepreneurs that I know, myself included, there has to be some degree of uh, disassociation with reality and expected outcomes to go to try something crazy. And, and you come from a background of risk analysis. So you are a seasoned veteran when it comes to understanding expected outcomes and yes. how much you should invest in their potential. Yes. And so like, what was that moment when you're like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take that very, the very well-known expected outcome of, like you said, coasting your retirement. And I'm going to instead yeah. inject a ton of uncertainty so, into your life and your future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, happy to answer that, uh, and articulate it. Um, so as I mentioned, I got this idea over a decade ago and it's been percolating, percolating at the same time, you know, I, I was working in finance and working on that stuff, but you know, it wasn't a step function. It was really one started outweighing the other, you know, it's a mm -hmm. sort of a, a mixer slider you would know about. And it become like, yeah, why not do this? And yes, you know, you have a, some level of financial stability and, and, you know, taking risk is is a good thing, and being having the uh, the background of managing risk is about managing the risk. It's not going into it, you know, blind. And um, yeah, you know, of course, there's some level of uncertainty to it, but it's like, yeah, I would not have been able to um, later on in life deal with the fact that I didn't try this. You know, yeah. it was one of those things like, and, you know, as I say, the slider thing, it just got more and more like, no, no, you got to do it. And okay. Yeah. You know, you're going to, you're going to sell this story, the idea, people are going to be interested in this. And the more I spoke to people, the more interested people got and then start, people started supporting like, yeah, yeah. And, and these are, you know, highly successful individuals. Um, including all the way down to, you know, my niece and nephew who are young and, and it's like really doing it for them. So my objective here is to plant this seed, like, Hey, we could do things that are beautiful, uh, you know, better user experience and be sustainable. Like you could, you couldn't actually do it by design and engineering. And it just, the conviction so, came more and more. So then I have two more questions for you then. Um, let's, when this plays out, when this plays through and your niece and nephew are old and they look back and they talk about their uncle Sanjeev, what, what legacy do you want them to retell the world of what you have created? I think it's about that the human imagination, you know, can solve a lot of problems if we all get together and, uh, think about it you know, take a step back. It's not purely about making money. It should be driven by like, hey, what problem are we uh, trying to solve? And coming up with these ideas and actually being able to, and that's why I feel, um, you know, I'm an immigrant to the US. It's incredible to be here that I could do this here. And um, I want them to be able to know that they could do that too. And whether they take this idea to the next level, but this crisis that we have of climate change, call it whatever, right? So I look at it from a 
what are called planetary boundaries. There's a lot of dimensions to it. It's a framework that was uh, developed by some professors, I believe, in, in Sweden, uh, which talks about a little bit, you know, acid, uh, ocean acidification to pollution to CO2, methane, all of these things. There's different dimensions. This thing is being inherited, and it's not anything, uh, any blame on the past, because the past did this based on the knowledge they had, right? They, the knowledge they had, they made the best of it, and they've moved forward. But this is an inflection point for us. We're seeing that some of these things are causing, fossil fuels basically are causing huge, huge damage for, for the next generation. So being able to say that, hey, we collectively are doing something. I'm not saying our solution is the silver bullet for all of the world's problems related to, to climate, but it's going to take a lot of these type of ideas and people trying them out. And when you have a thousand, you know, I'm a numbers person, uh, ideas, one or two are going to break through that are going to have a huge impact. But if you have a million ideas, right. maybe a thousand gets through and that's what, how, how it's going to change the trajectory. And that's my thinking. You know, I know it's a little bit philosophical and I understand sometimes that could be pie in the sky, but no, we could do it here. So, uh, well, you need both, yes, right? Yes. You need that analytical way of thinking and you also need an imagination that can conceptualize a different reality. Absolutely. Right? So if you, if you have only one or the other, you, you are going to lead either a very boring or a very short type of and, existence. And I will say um, that I'm, you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants to quote, uh, I think it was Newton who said that because there's so many brilliant people out there, not only engineers, but, you know, people who have a business experience. It's just all of it coming together. Branding, because I feel our, our product is not only uh, the engineering and the technology, but also the brand. And, hey, it stands for mm -hmm. something. This this can be solved. I'm, I'm convinced of this. These problems can be solved. So then here's my, my last question for you. Um, I have also, not also, I, I have the sin of having gone to business school around my neck. And so I often have people who come to me from very different walks of life, finance and consulting or what have you, and ask sort of, I'm thinking about doing something else, right? I'm not, I'm not emotionally or ethically or sort of, sort of personally satisfied with this current thing that I spend all my time doing. I'm sure you do too, especially having lived this experience. What, what do you say to those people that are on the brink of making a very big life decision? I would say one is, you know, do your evaluation on paper, right? And it could be a five-minute thing in your head or a two-week thing. It depends on the individual. But just do it and try it because otherwise you'll never know. There's no 100% guarantee about anything, right? And I'm not 100% guaranteed about my <laughs> progress in a couple of weeks, but we're trying it and we're getting great results. And it's not a binary thing, right? It's, it's like you have to try it. And you'll learn something from from that, and maybe the next iteration is better. But you got to keep trying, and that's that's kind of uh, also the ethos of our company at Gaia. Is keep trying, fail, fail a lot, fail fast, you know. And you you have you, you you put boundaries around the problem and try it. You know, the worst thing we could do is not do something. I think you know. Yeah, right. Inaction is a choice too. Um, I, I forgot to ask this before, but we got to ask before it is Gaia Star, the name. Yes. Where did it come from? Yeah. So it started with 
me trying to find a domain that could work. So I have many different names. <laughs> As does everybody, every right? So, oh, I know that all too well. Being very honest there and like, hey, like, you know, you cut it earth clay or whatever. You know, many different iterations that you could get the things. But then um, somehow, um, and by the way, we name every one of our machines that we make a different name. So like, you know, we have a current printer called Valentinta and so and so forth. But Gaia Star. Right. Steer clear from the Edison. That didn't work out. So yeah. Well. Yeah. Like the other printers that you do. Perhaps. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we, um, for me, the, the name Gaia was, you know, comes from Greek mythology of Mother Earth. And it had like, yeah, it's, you know, it has some something that connects to the story. Uh, and then the other part of the, the name, which is Star, is derived from Tavastar, which is a Hindu uh, um, a mythological uh, god, which is known as the divine builder. So in, in Hindu mythology, it's not a very pop, uh, you know, uh, prominent one, but it's, it is if you Wikipedia it. So I took the two names, you know, Mother Earth and divine builder together, and I thought it had a really powerful feeling to it. And the domain name was available too. So that's how the name, <laughs> name came about. And we were off to the races. Um, so perfect. And if you're still listening here, now's a great time to be like, you can be involved too. And action is all of our choice. So you probably have a coffee shop that you go to in the mornings and they, you can tell your local person, go check this out. We'll have this in the show notes as well. But what what would you like to share with them about sort of where they should go to learn more about you and how they can pass that information on to whatever their local coffee shop is that they go to in the morning? So, yes, they should visit us at uh, GaiaStar.com. We have a link there. That's G-A-E-A-S-T-A-R. That's correct. GaiaStar.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. But as we've discussed, my dyslexia is uh, well known for our listeners. So I'm that's dyslexic G-A-E-A-S-T-A-R. Too, so. <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, so there's a link there for inquiries and just, you know, connect with us. We're also on Instagram at GaiaStar underscore. And, you know, it's a lot of lot of people post um, the post use, you know, from putting plants in their little cups to using them as dog bowls. Mm. But these are some of the uh, way it's easy to get a hold of us and we'd be happy to, you know, talk, talk to people and tell the story because this is going to take a village. Everybody who likes it should support it. And, and you know, we, we, we go forward together. I love it. Love the idea. We'll, we'll do everything we can to support you guys. Um, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you very Sanji. much. You've come, you've, come, you've come a long way in a short time. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Who's Saving the Planet. You can learn more about Gaia Star at GaiaStar.com. That's G-A-E-A-S-T-A-R.com. And, of course, it's in the show notes. Our music is from the one and only James Rhodes. Our episode today was produced and mixed by Matt Simon. And I'm your host, Lexi Faber. Tune in next week for another episode about somebody who is saving the planet. <laughs>